couple of weeks ago, I had COVID, <clears throat> got to lay around in bed all day for four straight days while my beautiful family played at the beach. So praise the Lord for sanctifying vacations. <clears throat> One of the things that happens when you're in bed sick all day is you watch way too much TV. Amen? Amen? You know it's true. Uh, and, you know, if you have a good book around, you, you get to finish long books that you've started reading a long time ago and needed to finish. So that happened to me. I was laying there and I thought, you know what, this is a good time to finally finish John Steinbeck's novel, East of Eden. It's like 600 pages long and I've been reading it for a year and I needed to finish it. <clears throat> and as I finished it, uh, I was just struck by one character in particular. is a man named Lee. Lee uh, is one of the main characters, actually. Unfortunately, he doesn't even make it into the 1955 movie with James Dean, uh, not the sausage, you know, Jimmy Dean, but the actor, James Dean, 1955. Anyways, uh, he doesn't even make it into the movie, which I found to be really tragic, because Lee is, is really the voice of wisdom and strength and affection throughout the book, more so than the other main characters. Lee is the son of two Chinese railroad workers, uh, and he ends up on the, on the West Coast in California as a house servant, serving in this house for decades, this one particular family. As a servant, Lee has observed humans his whole life, and so Lee develops a really good read, or a good ability to read human nature. He understands people, how they tick, and how they think, and why they do what they do. He understands that humans are complex and complicated beings. He understands that our lives are more gray than black and white. Toward the end of the book, Lee says this about human nature. <clears throat> I want to quote it to you. Lee says, quote, We are all descended from the restless, the nervous, the criminals, the arguers and brawlers, but also the brave and independent and generous. We all have that heritage no matter what old land our fathers left. All colors and blends of Americans have somewhat the same tendencies. We're over brave and over fearful. We're kind and cruel. We're over friendly and at the same time frightened of strangers. We boast and are impressed. We're over sentimental and realistic. We are mundane and materialistic. We eat too much and we have no taste. And he goes on, but I'll end there. Do you see what Lee is saying? Lee is saying that no matter where we come from, we all have the same tendencies. That all of us, no matter who we are, where, where we've come from, or, or where we live now, we have the same tendencies. That we're we're a, a mixture of cowardice and courage, of virtue and vice. The Bible would explain this in terms of the Imago Dei and, fall, and being fallen in sin. We all have the image of God and therefore are capable of great good and, and beauty. But we're also all fallen in sin 
and capable of great evil and pain and harm. Both of these things are true all the time about everybody, Lee says, and I think the Bible would agree. Now, this reality, this, this reality of the, the mixture of virtue and vice within us doesn't like magically disappear when you start walking with God. Did any of you become a Christian and then all of a sudden you just only did what was virtuous all the time? And all vice and all cowardice, all fear, all harm, all of that stuff just disappeared. Did that happen to you? If it did, please come and talk to me. I want to know what you did, how you pulled it off. No, that doesn't happen to any of us. There is no story like that. The Lord indeed changes us when we start walking with him. The Bible says the spirit changes us from one degree of glory to another even. But this change is a slow and arduous and often unnoticeable process. Our walk with God often feels more like a roller coaster than a cruise around the lazy river. Walking with God includes stumbling in sin. Let me say that again because I think that's our main point this morning. Walking with God includes stumbling in sin. Doesn't excuse sin. It doesn't mean that God is happy and thrilled about our stumbles into sin. But the reality is that our walk with God includes stumbling in sin. This is true with us. And it's true with every person we meet in the Bible, except one, of course. One person never stumbled in sin, Jesus Christ. Everyone in the Bible was this complicated mixture of virtue and vice, which, by the way, I think speaks to the authenticity of the Bible. Many of uh, apologists have made this argument. I think it's a good argument. You know, if, if this Bible, if this book were false, then it wouldn't be so honest about all the failings of its main characters. <laughs> you would leave all that stuff out if you wanted just to promote your brand. But the Bible doesn't do that anywhere. It doesn't leave out the, vice, the vices of any of its main characters. So as we've been studying Genesis, we've gotten to know Abraham as a man of great faith, but also a man of great foolishness. We're going to see this again in Genesis chapter 20. So find a Bible. There's some little black Bibles in the pew backs in front of you. You can find on your phone or whatever you'd like to do. Genesis chapter 20 will be our text this morning. We're going to see this great man of faith stumble again and do something foolish in Genesis 20. God's covenant hasn't exempted Abraham from sin and unbelief. His walk with God included stumbling in sin. We're going to see this again in Genesis 20, where Abraham chooses self-preservation instead of trusting in the Lord. Now, what I want to do this morning is read the chapter and read the whole chapter, all 18 verses, and then talk about three things we learn from this text, from the events of this text. So I'm going to read the whole text and then three takeaways from the text. And uh, we're going to drink a lot of water. Uh, throughout. Please excuse me. <clears throat> Genesis 20, chapter 20, verse 1. From there, Abraham journeyed toward the territory of the Negeb. It's a word that literally just means south. 
So this is the southern part of modern-day Israel, the territory of the Negev, and lived between Kadesh and Shur, and he sojourned in Gerar. <clears throat> and Abraham said of Sarah, his wife, she is my sister. And Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. But God came to Abimelech in a dream by night and said to him, Behold, you are a dead man because of the woman whom you have taken, for she is a man's wife. Now Abimelech had not, appeared, had, had not approached her, so he said, Lord, will you kill an innocent people? Did he not himself say to me, She is my sister? And she herself said, He is my brother? In the integrity of my heart and in the innocence of my hands, I have done this. Then God said to him in the dream, Yes, I know that you have done this in the integrity of your heart. And it was I who kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. Now then, return the man's wife, for he is a prophet, so that he will pray for you, and you shall live. But if you do not return her, know that you shall surely die, you and all who are yours." Verse 8, so Abimelech rose early in the morning and called all his servants and told them all these things, and the men were very much afraid. Then Abimelech called Abraham and said to him, What have you done to us? And how have I sinned against you that you have brought on me and my kingdom a great sin? You have done to me things that ought not to be done. And Abimelech said to Abraham, What did you see that you did this thing? Abraham said, I did it because I thought there's no fear of God at all in this place and they will kill me because of my wife. Besides, she is indeed my sister, the daughter of my father, though not the daughter of my mother, and she became my wife. And when God calls me to wander from my father's house, I said to her, this is the kindness you must do to me, do me at every place to which we come. Say of me, he is my brother. Then Abimelech took sheep and oxen and male servants and female servants, and gave them to Abraham, and returned Sarah, his wife, to him. And Abimelech said, Behold, my land is before you. Dwell where it pleases you. To Sarah he said, Behold, I have given your brother a thousand pieces of silver. It is a sign of your innocence in the eyes of all who are with you, and before everyone you are vindicated. Then Abraham prayed to God, and God healed Abimelech and also healed his wife and female slaves so that they bore children. For the Lord had closed all the wombs of the house of Abimelech because of Sarah, Abraham's wife. Three things that we can learn from the events here in chapter 20. The first thing that we can learn from this story is that God's plan does not depend on perfection. God's plan does not depend on perfection. Despite the Lord's demand back in chapter 17, verse 1, that Abraham be blameless, the fulfillment of his plan didn't depend on the moral perfection of his agent, Abraham. Throughout the narrative of Abraham's life, there are many illustrations of, this less, of his less than perfect moral character. But the Lord knew, as one scholar says, that, quote, he'd placed the burden of his saving agenda on his shoulders and wouldn't discard him for occasional failures, end quote. 
Abraham, you might remember, was counted righteous back in chapter 15, verse 6, because of his, somebody said it, faith. Because of his faith. Abraham wasn't counted righteous because he was righteous. He was not righteous. He was counted righteous, reckoned righteous, because he believed in the promises of God. And that's true for you. The only way you're going to be righteous before God is if you trust the promises of God. You'll never attain a level of righteousness that will endear you to God. Not going to happen. But you can just embrace His promises, stake your life upon them, and be counted righteous, be reckoned righteous. Abraham was a, indeed a man of remarkable faith, but he also had massive character Flaws. If we were to plot the ethical performance of this righteous man, quote-unquote righteous, Abraham, righteous man on a graph, the line would not be a straight line going ever higher and higher. It would not be like this. This is not Abraham's life. Best illustration ever. Thank you, Austin. That is a perfectly straight line. You just can't tell from where you're sitting. <clears throat> Abraham's life does not, does not do this. And by the way, neither does mine or yours. Does this describe your life? No, I've got one better that describes uh, Abraham's and ours. Abraham's life would better be plotted like a yo-yo line alternating between incredibly high highs of faith and low lows of unbelief and disobedience. Now, um, this looks kind of like one of those machines in the hospital. What are those called? Kyle, help me out here. Yeah, that one, the EKG. Right, it's up and down, it's up and down, it's up and down, it's up and down. In chapter 12, Abraham does the same thing he does here. He lies about his wife, Sarah, and uh, Sarah's taken into Pharaoh's court. Chapter 15, he's complaining and questioning the promises of God. Chapter 16, he utterly demeans Hagar and uses her, abuses her. Chapter 20, here we're at this morning, he does the sister fib, the sister lie again, and, and gives up his wife um, to Abimelech. This is the picture of Abraham's life that we see in Scripture, not this. And this is the picture, by the way, that we see in our own lives. Doesn't this better describe your life? It sure does mine. You know, you get to a peak and you're like, man, this is awesome. My quiet times have been unbelievable. I'm like... I'm like reading my Bible every day. God has to be extra happy with me because I've read my Bible for 13 days in a row. You know, and then the bottom falls out. And you wonder whether God even is real. You wonder why you're sinning in ways that you've been sinning your whole life and you can't seem to shake loose. You wonder if God loves you. You wonder why you even go to church. Why even bother? Isn't this our life? Isn't this our life? Now, I think it's Ed Welch who points this out in one of his books. Our life is a yo-yo. The, the, the journey of our life is definitely more like a yo-yo as it is with Abraham. But if you'll notice, there's a trajectory, isn't there? There's a stumbling forward or upward, if you will. People who belong to God stumble mightily, but they're stumbling forward. They don't stumble into sin, get stuck in sin, even stay in sin for a season and, and then throw in the towel and just give up. 
people who belong to God, eventually get up and keep going. Keep trusting, keep believing, keep praying, keep worshiping, keep serving. There's a trend that's ever upwards for the people of God. Whatever spiritual maturity Abraham had, the post-covenant Abraham wasn't much different from the pre-covenant Abraham. The Bible's full of people who, though they're in a covenant with God, they're sometimes living as if they're still pre-covenant. Have you ever noticed, by the way, in the New Testament, how many ethical and moral commands are given to Christians and churches? You might think, well, yeah, uh, all of them. <laughs> they're, if they're in the New Testament, they're for Christians and churches. But this is, this is pretty astounding if you think about it. I'll just give you one example. I'll read a few verses from Colossians 3. So this is a letter from Paul to a church or a group of Christians. Chapter 3, verse 5. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these you once too walked when you were living in them. But now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices, and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. So he's saying, put all this stuff away and put all this stuff on. Why was he talking like that? Because these Christians needed to do it. They had things they needed to put away and things they needed to put on. When they were converted to Christ, just as when you were converted to Christ, you didn't just change your clothes once instantaneously and then never struggle with sin again. That's not what happened or is happening. These moral and ethical commands are in the Bible because these Christians are still doing these things that they shouldn't be doing and not doing the other things they should be doing. Like Abraham, our Christian life is a mixture of moments of greatness and moments of shame. Paul can call the Corinthian church as those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus, the very beginning of 1 Corinthians. And then he goes on in the whole letter and talks about all kinds of immorality they have, litigation that's going on, division, theological confusion. Uh, many of them are more interested in following their favorite preacher than being united in Jesus. And yet he calls them sanctified in Christ. They were holy ones in Jesus. You might remember Romans 7. Paul talks about the civil war within his heart that resulted in him failing to do the good and his inability to not do the evil. Romans 7, 21 through 25. The reason stories like Genesis 20 is, are in the Bible is to encourage us. 
to encourage us, to remind us that we aren't the only ones who stumble while walking with God. Friend, you aren't the only one who's stumbling while walking with God. Friends, you aren't the only one stumbling. You aren't the only one struggling with unbelief. You aren't the only one struggling with slothfulness or slander or lust or pride or whatever it is. You aren't the only one. But texts like this are also in the Bible to warn us, to give us examples of what could happen if we don't turn from our sin and pursue holiness. This text shows us that if we're left to ourselves, we're going to make a tragic mess of God's work in our lives. If Abraham is just left to himself in this text, then it's going to go very badly for him and his wife and his offspring. Remember the context of Genesis 20. In the previous chapters, the Lord has told Abraham several times that Sarah will have a son to him will bear him a son within the next year. That's 1719, 1721, 1810, 1814. So four different times the Lord tells Sarah and Abraham that she will bear him a son within the next year. Then at the beginning of chapter 21, we'll see next week that the Lord visits Sarah and Sarah gives birth to a son. So this little stopover in Gerar, this little sojourn over to the land of the Philistines probably happened while Sarah was carrying Isaac. Or at least she was about to be. Think of that. She could be pregnant with the promised one even while Abraham is, is more or less giving her away to this foreign king. Even after the Lord specifically told Abraham that Sarah would give him a son, within just a few months, he's handing her over to Abimelech, which would have meant the end of the promise of a son for Abraham. They're on the brink of Isaac's promised birth. And this birth is put in jeopardy. Abraham is trading the promises of God for his personal safety. He says that down in verse... Excuse me... <clears throat> Verse 11, <clears throat> there is no fear of God at all in this place. They will kill me because of my wife. So Abraham would rather give his wife up than face the possibility of death. Husbands, don't be that guy. <laughs> don't do that, please, ever. Men who want to be husbands, no, this is not the way. <laughs> this is not the way. You, husband, are called to die if necessary rather than forfeit the safety of your wife. Instead of protecting her purity, he's relying on his own scheming and cunning to get out of this difficult circumstance. Instead of protecting his wife, he's protecting himself. In his fear, his faith falters. So this means that if God's promise of this son born to Sarah by Abraham is going to be fulfilled, it will have nothing to do with Abraham. It will not be because of him physically or morally. It will be the result of the grace of God. If this one is born, if this promised son Isaac is to come into the world, it will be the result of the grace of God and the grace of God alone. Abraham is, <laughs> Abraham is in danger of, of 
blowing up the whole plan until God intervenes, as we'll see in just a moment. Just a moment. But I want to stop and ask you to consider what areas, friends, what areas of your life are you not trusting the Lord? What areas are you trying to maneuver things around to your advantage rather than trusting the Lord? Maybe there's a temptation as you get back to school in a couple weeks. Students, there's a temptation to cheat on your schoolwork so that you can keep your scholarship. There's the temptation to lie in your business because your business, after all, is what's providing for all these people, your family. So the temptation is to lie or cheat or break the rules so that your business doesn't suffer. Maybe the temptation is to spread false information about someone else because it makes you look better and will serve you. Maybe there's slothfulness or laziness because you're afraid of attempting something that may lead to failure or looking bad, you looking bad. So you'd rather just do nothing rather than trust the Lord and do something. Professor John Curid says it this way. He says, quote, each of us has deeply worn channels of a corrupt nature, besetting sins that refuse to let us go. And these sins come in cycles. They revisit us time and time again. Similar situations lead us to act in a similar vein. But as in the case of Abraham, God continues to bring the situation upon us so that we should see our sin and that we should turn to Him, that we should trust Him and realize He will protect us. Such repetitive cycles highlight our besetting sins, but they also point to a solution, which is complete trust and faith in God. You see what Professor Curate is saying? He's saying our besetting sins show us our sin, no doubt, show us what we need to stop doing, but they also give us opportunity for greater trust in God. They give us opportunity to call out to God, to believe in His promises again. Understand that He can deliver us and He will protect us when we call out to Him. So this is the first thing we learn from this text is that God's plan will not fail despite our failures. Now the second thing we learn from this text, from the the events of this text, is that Abimelech as an outsider embodies what we should have seen in Abraham. In other words, what we see in this text, frankly, is that Abimelech is better than Abraham. After the Lord confronts Abimelech in a dream, verse 4, He asserts his innocence. He says, Lord, will you kill an innocent people? This might sound familiar. This is the same question Abraham asked God back in chapter 18 about destroying the righteous in Sodom. Lord, will you destroy the righteous with the wicked? Well, now it's Abimelech asking the very same question. Verse 4 says that Abimelech had not approached her. Abimelech had not approached her. That language means that he hadn't touched her. He hadn't had any sexual relationships with her. He confesses in verse 5 that his heart is pure. His hands are innocent. In the integrity of my heart and the innocence of my hands, I have done this. He's saying that I haven't touched her. I haven't wanted to touch her. I haven't had impure thoughts about her. He's saying that he hasn't sinned in thought or action. He's innocent with Sarah. This is great irony. This is a reversal of roles. The insider to the covenant, Abraham, was supposed to be blameless. But the outsider to the covenant, Abimelech, is the one who's 
righteous. He's the representative of the world that lives under the curse of sin, but he's the one acting righteously. Later on, he's willing to return Sarah. He grants Abraham the ability to move around and even settle in his land. This is verses 14, 15, and 16. He gives Abraham sheep and oxen, servants. He gives a thousand pieces of silver. He says to Abraham, hey, you can live anywhere in my land that you want. Now that's important because Abraham, verse 1, is a sojourner. He doesn't have a place to live. He's roaming about. Abimelech is saying, you can stay here. I'll give you the best of my land if you want it. This is what Abraham did with Lot, remember? Back in chapter 13, Lot, you pick the best land. Whatever you think is best, you can have it. I'll be okay with that. Now it's Abimelech doing that. He's the righteous one in this story. <laughs> I wonder what Abimelech thought when the Lord told him in that dream, verse 7, <clears throat> God said to him in his dream, Yes, I know that you've done this in integrity of your heart. Then verse 7, Return the man's wife, for he is a prophet. <laughs> I wonder what Abimelech thought. Wait, what? This guy who's lying to me, who's scheming, that guy who just gave up his wife, he's a prophet? And I'm supposed to go to, he's supposed to pray for me? I don't think so. That, that would strike any of us as strange. Abimelech, in verses 9 and 10, is asking Abraham three questions. And he's trying to figure out why he did what he did. Why would you do this? What have I done to cause this? What did you see here in our land that would lead you to think that this is okay? Then in verses 11 through 13, Abraham responds with three excuses to justify his actions. He says first in verse 11 that there was no fear of God in Gerar, which seems unwarranted given the response of Abimelech's servants in verse 8. So Abimelech rose early in the morning, called all his servants and told them these things, and the men were very much afraid. Often when things aren't going someone's way, they'll start accusing everyone else of being in the wrong. There's no fear of God in the land. That's why I did this thing. He's not owning his own lack of fear of God. Verse 12, he says that Sarah is his sister, which is a half-truth. She's his half-sister. But earlier he's conveniently omitted the part about her also being his wife. Notice how Moses not so subtly points that out in verse 2. Abraham said <clears throat> of Sarah, his wife, just in case we forgot who Sarah is, Sarah, his wife, she is my sister. Abraham conveniently leaves that part out. Then verse 13, down in verse 13, he says that it's God who caused me to wander from my father's house. God caused me to be a sojourner. God brought me here. God didn't give me a place to settle. God made me a sojourner so that I wouldn't have any rights to a land right now. So Abraham is in such a sorry spiritual state that he's blaming God for even being over in Gerar. He's saying that it was God who removed him from the country of his father's house, the security of his father's house, and caused him to wander around as a sojourner. What's happening here is that Abraham is willing to do everything except tell the truth. He's not just simply saying, you know what, Abimelech, you're right. I shouldn't have done that. I'm sorry. Can I please have my wife back? <laughs> Friends, this is always the hardest thing to do, but the best thing to do. 
when you're wrong, it's so easy just to start to spin it, you know, start to make up and give reasons for why you did what you did, said what you said, thought what you thought, whatever it is, rather than just simply admitting I was wrong. Husbands and wives, I'll tell you, you probably know this already, but let me remind you. The, the simple confession and admission of guilt will go way better for you in the long run. I was, husbands, do you ever say that to your wife? Babe, I'm sorry. I, I spoke harshly to you. I was mean. Please forgive me. My anger, as we tell our kids, I let anger be the boss. Please forgive me. I was wrong. Do you ever own your guilt before even just a friend, perhaps, that you've wronged? What we often do is we start talking about the other person. There's no fear of God in this place. If this place was more holy, then I would have never done this. Do you ever just admit to a friend, maybe a roommate, maybe a parent, maybe a sibling, maybe a coworker? Hey, you know what? What I did was wrong. It's not your fault. I shouldn't have said that. I shouldn't have done it that way. You know what that does too? It sets you free, and it also creates a depth in that relationship that wasn't there before. So I pray that you have the courage, friends, that you'd have the courage to own your guilt. And don't be like Abraham. Just own it, own it, confess it, and move on. See what the Lord does. Abraham's willing to do everything except tell the truth. The Lord had earlier promised to be Abraham's shield, but here he, here the Lord had to shield Abimelech from the danger that Abraham was creating for him. Verse 6 is packed with some profound theology. We won't spend a lot of time here, but I want you to see this. Verse 6, this is in the dream to Abimelech. God says, yes, I know that you have done this in the integrity of your heart. And it was I who kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. So here the Lord is shielding Abimelech from Abraham's sin. Verse 6 says plainly that it was the Lord who kept Abimelech from sinning, from touching or taking Sarah as his own. The reason Abimelech didn't touch Sarah is because God didn't let him. I did not let you touch her. I did not let you touch her. Abimelech's integrity and God's sovereignty aren't mutually exclusive. Notice the language again. I know that you have done this in the integrity of your heart. And it was I who kept you from sinning against me. Both things were happening at the same time. Abimelech did the right thing, but he did the right thing because God enabled him to do the right thing. God sovereignly stopped him from sinning. Friends, we are responsible to obey God. God commands us to obey Him. 
But when we do, we give Him praise and thanks because our obedience was the result of His grace. Let me give you a couple of New Testament texts on this point. First Philippians 2, 12-13. Paul says, Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for His good pleasure. And then Hebrews 13, 20-21. Now may the God of peace equip you with everything good that you may do His will, working in us that which is pleasing in His sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Listen to how John Piper in his book Providence explains that Philippians 2 text. He says, quote, We work because God is at work in us. We will and do because God is willing and doing in us. What Paul makes plain here in Philippians is how fully our own effort is called into action. We do not wait for the miracle. We act the miracle. We're not deluded into thinking that our action is unnecessary or that it is decisive. It is neither. On the contrary, our effort in the pursuit of final salvation is necessary and God's willing and doing are decisive. End quote. In other words, we have to work. Work out your salvation. Work it out. Work it out. And its conclusion, the decisive nature of our salvation at the end of time will be a result of God's grace and God's grace alone. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for His good pleasure. He works in us that which is pleasing in His sight. So dear brothers and sisters, if you've reached any level of maturity in your life, guess whose fault it is? God's. And by the way, I commend you. I commend you, brothers and sisters. So many of you are fighting the good fight of faith. You're obeying the Lord. You're struggling and, and fighting against sin. You're serving you're encouraging one another. You're meeting together throughout the week. You're helping your neighbors in various ways. Keep up the good work, guys. Keep up the good work, knowing that it's God working in you that which is pleasing in His sight. Abimelech is acting righteously in this story. Abraham isn't. But Abimelech is only doing what's right because of God's restraining grace. The reason God must enable His work in us is because we can't do it ourselves. Abimelech couldn't and we can't either. Apart from God's restraining grace, we would only and always sin. Friends, have you ever stopped and thought about the ways God has kept you from sinning? Have you ever stopped and thanked God for His restraining grace, for Him keeping you from doing all the evil that you could have done? I think we should do this on a regular basis. You know, often when a plane crashes, people shake their fists and like, where is God? You know, but hundreds of thousands of planes land safely and, and no one says anything to the Lord. <clears throat> what about all the thousands of times, friends, that the Lord has restrained you, 
has kept you from walking over that cliff, from doing that thing. You stayed silent in a conversation (laughs) when you really wanted to speak. And afterwards, you were really thankful that you did. Do you give praise to God? This text should lead us to pray what Jesus taught us to pray in the Lord's Prayer. Do you remember the end of the Lord's Prayer? Lord, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. God has the power to keep us from sinning. So ask Him to do it. Ask Him to do it. Lord, lead me not into temptation. Keep me from evil. By the power of His Holy Spirit, He can keep us from stumbling. As Matt read for us earlier, the end of Jude, now to Him who is able to keep you from stumbling. We do stumble, and God is able to keep us from stumbling. Let's ask Him to do it. Let's ask Him to do it as a church. Friends, do you ever pray prayers for our church? God, keep us faithful to your word. Keep our pastors humble. Keep our members loving and caring and praying and serving. Keep us from the evil one. Keep us from the temptation to look more like the world rather than more like Christ. Do you ever pray these kind of prayers for our church? Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. So this is the second thing. We see Abimelech is acting more righteously than Abraham. Finally and quickly, we learn that despite Abraham's failure, the Lord still confirms him as his covenant partner. In verse 7, in Abimelech's dream, the Lord calls Abraham a prophet. This is the first time this word is used in the Bible. God doesn't excuse Abraham's actions by saying he's a prophet, but he lets Abimelech know that Abraham, as a prophet, has the mouth, has special access to God's mouth and God's ears to hear from him and speak for him. So Abimelech should therefore ask Abraham to pray for him so that he'll live. And Abraham does that in verse 17. Abraham prayed to God and God healed Abimelech and also healed his wife and female slaves so that they bore children. God is again blessing the nations through Abraham. Now it's ironic that Abraham prays and the wombs of these Philistine women are opened while his own wife has remained barren for decades. What's up with that? Well, there's some rich theology for us at the end of the passage, verse 18, for the Lord. You might see that it's in all caps. This is the personal name for God, Yahweh, the first and only time. The personal name for the Lord is used in this text. The Lord had closed all the wombs of the house of Abimelech. So, narrator Moses is letting us know that the Lord is the one who closes wombs, and then next week, verse 1 of chapter 21, the Lord visited Sarah. The Lord did to Sarah as he had promised, and Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son. The Lord closes and opens the womb. Period. This should lead us, brothers and sisters, to never boast that we have more or less children than anyone else. It's not a competition. 
<laughs> the Bible never tells us how many kids we should have. It says we should fill our quivers. And we all have different size quivers. The more children I have, I feel like the smaller my quiver is. <laughs> the Lord opens the womb. The Lord gives children. The Lord decides. It's not a competition. It should never be a marker of some spiritual maturity or blessing from God because we have more kids than another. We should never be overly, hear me carefully, we should never be overly consumed with despair if we are not having children. The Lord knows what He's doing. The Lord knows what He's doing. The Lord knows what He's doing. Remember two weeks ago? Will not the judge of all the earth do what is right? He'll never do what's wrong. The Lord sovereignly decides who and when people have children. Abraham's sin didn't disqualify him from serving the Lord or blessing others. He was still able to intercede effectively on Abimelech's behalf. Have you ever been in a pretty bad season, pretty low season, and then you, something happens, you do something, you serve, you, you, you speak the gospel to someone, and something happens, you're like, where did that come from? That's because the Lord is still working through you. The Lord is not going to give up on you because you have a bad season. The Lord doesn't give up on Abraham because he's an idiot in Gerar. He doesn't just give up on him. No, he still says, this is my guy. He's my prophet. Go to him, he'll pray for you, and I'll heal you. And he does. God still intends to bless a cursed world through sinful men. <laughs> or as I like to say, God loves to write straight lines with crooked sticks. Now, as we close, the ESV puts these little chapter, these little section headings. They're not inspired. Chapter 19, the ESV calls this, God rescues Lot, right? In chapter 20, Abraham and Abimelech. But really, the better subtitle, I think, or section heading for this passage would be God rescues Abraham. God rescues Abraham. God is the one who sends the dream to Abimelech to let him know what's happening with Sarah so that Sarah can go back to Abraham and the promised son can be born and the seed of the serpent will not prevail. The seed of the woman will continue to prevail through the seed of Abraham. The point of this story is that Abraham isn't some sterling spiritual superstar that God wanted on his team. Abraham is not the righteous man in this story. Abimelech is. Abraham is just another dude who struggles with self-absorption and sin. He's like everyone else. But the Lord mercifully calls him to himself and uses him to bless the world. This story shows us that God's purposes will come to pass by God's sovereign grace, not by our righteousness, and that nothing can thwart God from fulfilling His purposes, even our sin. Now, friends, this doesn't mean we have license to sin. We will always regret our sin. We will always regret our sin. We will always regret our sin. And God will always use us despite our sin. So we should be encouraged by this text to remember that walking with God always includes stumbling and sin. 
that he still intends to use people like Abraham and people like us to bless the world. Of course, there's only one person who ever walked with God without stumbling, without sinning. The God-man, Jesus Christ. It's only by trusting in His righteousness that we will be counted righteous. It's only by putting our faith in Christ that we will get what we don't have, righteousness. And He'll take what we do have, sin. Christ would not have done what Abraham did here. Christ would not have done what we do in our self-absorption and our pride and our sin. He did what God asked him to do always and without fail so that, so that we can put our faith in him and be forgiven and be free and be righteous and blameless before God, even though our lives don't look as blameless as we would like them to. So brothers and sisters, friends, visitors, if you'd like to know more about what it means to follow Jesus Christ, what it means to be righteous in Jesus Christ, come and grab me in the foyer afterwards. Maybe grab the person you came with or one of the people sitting around you. We'd love to talk to you more about what it means to follow and know Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. <clears throat> Father in heaven, we give you praise for the Bible. Thank you for the word of the Lord. Thank you for the law of the Lord. It teaches us so much. It shows us by both positive and negative example who you want to be, who you want us to be. And it points us forward to your son, Christ, the true and greater Abraham who never failed you. Christ who will never give up his bride. Christ who was willing and did indeed die for his bride unlike Abraham. Christ died for his bride rather than give her up. I pray, Father, that those here today who don't yet know and walk with you would come to know you in faith, would repent of their sins, would find the hope and healing, forgiveness that they're looking for in the name of Jesus Christ. In his name I pray. Amen.